Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. What a treasure, a precious treasure you hold in your hands. Amen. In our language, so easily obtainable, bought by the blood of men who transcribed it, translated it, copied it, and brought it to us. Thank you, Lord, for those men who gave their lives, their fortunes, in order for us to have the Word of God. I want to read the last three verses of Second Peter chapter 1. And this will be our theme for today. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light, that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen and Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these precious words describing your word. Without taking very much time, I want to quickly remind you that these two epistles are epistles of hope and they are directed forward. They are not directed backward. This Jewish audience to which Peter wrote were already baptized believers having been instructed and taught and established in the present truth by the Apostle Paul. They did not need to have anything proven to them about Jesus Christ having come in to this world, having died on the cross, and having risen from the dead. What they needed to be further established in is what we need to be further established in, that Jesus Christ is coming again. If we go to chapter 1 and verse 4, it says that there have been given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That is directing us forward. Things have been promised to us that we do not yet have. Verses 10 and 11 describe falling out of the will of God and out of heaven into eternal condemnation. And it describes an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 11. In verse 16, it says that the apostles had not followed cunningly devised fables when they made known unto these people the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was yet to come. This whole epistle is pointed forward just like the first epistle was pointed forward about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. If you turn to chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter tells us his audience is the same, His theme is the same. And then he tells us what that theme was. In chapter 3 and verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And he goes on to describe the second coming and a new heaven and a new earth. And so that is the overriding theme, and we want to keep that in mind 
as we go through these three verses and we start with the words, the word of prophecy. There is an actual prophecy under consideration. While the word prophecy in the Bible can refer to general revelation from God to men, in this particular case, verse 16 has told us that it is the powerful coming or the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the second time when He comes. And that's Peter's theme. And it should be our theme. They were already established. We are already established on the fact that when Jesus came the first time, He fulfilled numerous prophecies about Himself, His birth, His death, His resurrection. That was all established. What we need to affect our lives and why we do well to take heed to this Word is because the second coming should change our lives. And that's what we have here in uh, in a brief thumbnail sketch of the overall context of First and Second Peter. Let's get right into these words. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. This passage of Scripture and that clause establishes and exalts the glory and value of the Bible. And of course, the prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That being one of the things that the Bible tells us. Without God's revelation given to us in writing, we would be adrift at sea. What would you know? It's staggering to think about it. What you would know. The worldlings out there who have not read the Bible nor submitted themselves to it don't know anything. They don't know the origin of death or the end of man. They think we came from monkeys and the universe from a big bang of cosmic gases. They don't know about economics. Look at the policies of our nation. They don't know anything. They don't know about marriage, that it involves a man and a woman, and God designed them anatomically to fit together very nicely, I would say, based on the authority of God's Word. They are messed up from A to Z, from top to bottom, and from east to west. We know everything because of the Bible. Without God's revelation and writing, we would invent content like everyone else does. And we would tell fables and dreams and visions like we had a warning in the back room this morning in our prayer meeting from Jeremiah chapter 23. The prophet that has a dream, go ahead and tell your dream. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? The Lord's mocking any made-up content of visions or dreams. Without being totally confident of God's Word, we would have nothing here. But we are totally confident of God's Word. We know exactly what He wants from us. We know where we came. We know where we're going. We know what He's done for us. We know about Him. We know His name. We know the name of His Son. We know what His Son did in the cross. We know His Son rose from the dead, that will rise from the dead, that our bodies merely sleep until the great day of resurrection. We know so much. Jesus Christ is coming. You want to know about Jesus Christ? You're going to stand before Him very soon. You are a week older this week, Brother Stephen, than you were last week. And I right there with you, and so is everyone else in here. We will stand before Him soon. He is coming again. He will split this atmosphere open. I don't care if you like that beautiful sky that's out there right now. He's going to split it wide open, and He's going to appear. And when the trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel, and with a shout... Your spleen's going to burst. You won't care because you don't need the old spleen. You're going to get a new one because we shall be changed. 
And the hope of that and, and being established in that should cause us to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. It's the greatest unfulfilled prophecy there is yet to come, and that's the coming of our Lord. God, by His grace and His Holy Spirit, convinced me when I was 26 years old, back in Michigan, of this 19th verse, and filled me with confidence to go ahead and quit my job at a bank and become a pastor. Because there is something to preach. It's the more sure word of prophecy. And the Lord showed me the great contrast that is being drawn between verses 16 through 18 and verses 19 through 21 and why we have the words also and the words more sure. Because though Peter had quite a spectacular event on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible is better. The Bible is more sure. Peter said that himself and he was one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when a, when a man that's called to preach by the Lord Jesus Christ is shown the Word of God like this passage, it should light a fire in him. And I hope it lights a fire in each of you. Right. I'm thankful for that. We reject the devilish nonsense of charismatic and Pentecostal deceptions. They're going to get in their pulpits this morning and say, I had a dream. I had a vision. I heard a voice. I died and went to hell. I died and went to heaven. They have all this stuff. There's a proliferation of it right now in the world. There are so many books and video clips and YouTube clips and interviews of people who have died and gone to hell and come back. Now the rich man couldn't, but they did. They've died and gone to heaven. And some books are being pulled from shelves as little children grow up and say, Mommy, I really didn't go to heaven back there when you wrote that book and made two million off of gullible Christians. I didn't really die and go to heaven. Mommy, what are you going to do? You know about all the, all that stuff's going on right now. Because people would rather hear about someone dying and going to heaven than hearing about the God of heaven describe it. I'm very thankful for a cartoon that was put on a Facebook page yesterday. Now, this is rare, so you might want to mark your calendars again. I didn't see it myself. I've just had it shown to me this morning. Christina? Excellent. Excellent. It shows a man on his knees in prayer. And he's begging, God, speak to me. The next picture in this two-picture cartoon is a hand coming out of a cloud with a Bible in it. Every Listen, young people and children, what if God came into your bedroom and the cloud of His excellent glory was over you and then it enveloped you and you were very afraid and then Jesus Christ was there shining like a bright light in the corner and Moses and Elijah were talking to Him about dying on the cross and God said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Would that impress you? Peter was there and it didn't impress him in comparison to God's Word. So he wrote in that 19th verse, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Brethren, we don't play games with so-called originals. We have the King James Bible. No man has ever had or will have the originals. We do not play games with a multitude of versions. I only read one. 
They're all word contradictory, and we have a Bible that has word integrity. And the difference between those two words, contradictory and integrity, is great. We don't search man's commentaries for truth because we need God's words. We're not content with mere ideas about truth because we want certain words of truth as they're described in Proverbs chapter 22. With supreme confidence in the words of God, religion is playing games today. I mean, without without supreme confidence in the words of God, religion turns into be just gamesmanship. Without God's certain revelation to us put in writing, you have no clue about life here or life hereafter. You came into this world needing a diaper because you were dirtying on yourself. And you are going to go out the very same way. And in between, we don't learn anything apart from God's Word. All we can know by the natural creation, if you read Psalm 19 last night, the first six verses tell us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. That creation is pretty neat, that it's pretty glorious. And Romans 1 says that we can learn there is a Godhead with eternal power. So we can learn there is a God. He has eternal power. He's glorious. And He's very creative in what He created. Period. Now what do we know from the Bible? That's why in verse 7 it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The stars and the moon and hummingbirds and roses don't convert the soul. It's the Word of God that converts the soul. It's the Word of God that we look into a mirror and it shows us our blemishes and we can repent of our sins and that man is blessed in his deed according to James 1.25. We must always emphasize the words of Scripture as the Creator Jehovah's revelation to us and His providential preservation of those words in our King James Bibles. The chief prophetic or revelation, revelatory idea, concept or fact It's actually a prophecy in these verses is the second coming of Jesus Christ because that is the overriding theme and context of this epistle. And we have it right there in verse 16 where we are told by Peter that we apostles were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord. Now he doesn't say, but we were eyewitnesses of him when he rose from the dead. Because that wouldn't be good enough for the second coming. It doesn't say, but we ate and drank with Him. It says we were on the Mount of Transfiguration and we saw Him glorified and Moses and Elijah glorified into a state that has been unknown to men on this planet ever before. And He drew from that a token or an illustration of the second coming of Christ. And it's inferior to what we have written. What you heard from some of those passages, Job knew, and that may be the first book written. Job may have written, Elihu and Job may have written Job before Moses wrote Genesis due to some internal evidence in the book of Job. But whether it's first or whether it's second, right around the time of Moses, Job knew that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, and my eyes shall behold him, and they will not be the eyes of another. That is way back in Job. 
The Old Testament had a word of prophecy about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes all the difference in the world as Asaph told us when he went into the sanctuary and realized that he shouldn't be envious at the wicked who were getting rich in this world because God was going to come and receive him into glory while he condemned them into everlasting punishment. Oh, we're blessed with the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. We understand this first clause. We have also a more sure word of prophecy that there is a comparison being made. Because the word also means there are two things being considered and the word more sure is a comparative meaning that one of those things is more sure, is more certain than the other thing. And the two things are what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration and the written scriptures. Because the next two verses are going to tell us that what is more sure are the written scriptures of God. Now we actually have three things in the context. We have cunningly devised fables up there in verse 16. Then we have the Mount of Transfiguration event for Peter. Then we have the written scriptures. Now, would you like to go back and compare written scripture to cunningly devised fables? Since in between, we have something that is transcendent over fables, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. That was no fable. That wasn't cunningly devised. That was a historical fact. And yet the Word of God is more sure than that transcendent event of our Lord's transfiguration in front of His apostles. Oh, we're blessed with the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. We trust our English Bible, and we trust the comparative value of also and more sure in this first clause. Notice that Peter uses a first-person plural pronoun in this clause. The first word of the clause. We. First person. We includes Peter. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He doesn't say, you have a more sure word of prophecy since you weren't there. He says, we have a more sure word of prophecy and I was there. The Word of God is better than being there on the Mount of Transfiguration. There couldn't be a more graphic vision and experience than what Peter described. I've tried to say this to you for many years, and it's how the Lord convinced me back there in 1983. He had two earthly witnesses. When he got down, he could pinch himself. Don't people say, pinch yourself? Did that really just happen? Pinch yourself. I get, does that help? Pinch. I don't know. Is that how you prove something? Pinch. Sorry. It's just ridiculous. How's the certainty of something? Well, let's establish it in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So Peter has James and John, earthly witnesses. Peter has two heavenly witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Peter saw the Lord Jesus Christ receive majesty as he was transfigured before him, so he saw it. Then he heard God's voice, and that cloud came down and enveloped them, and they hit the deck. I mean, it was the most dramatic and graphic experience that you could ever want to have. Earthly witnesses, heavenly witnesses, the Lord Jesus glorified, God the Father showing up on the scene in the cloud of His excellent glory and His voice thundering from heaven. Wonderful! Fabulous! That is the event given to Peter, James, and John, then used by Peter in this passage to elevate the Word of God as high as he could. 
Do you know that we live, the world is being ransacked by Pentecostal charismatic types today that always talk about visions or dreams. We preach the Word of God. A minister is not supposed to get up and tell his dreams or anything else, but preach the Word. Because this is certain. It's in writing. And it's more sure than that incredible event that God gave Peter, James, and John. Christians today get more excited about all this junk of visions and stuff. Jesse Duplantis, if you don't know who he is, you need to type him into a Google search box for a few minutes and watch him describe going to heaven. He's good at what he does. He is a good public liar. You've got to see him. He's very entertaining. I'm serious. He's my favorite entertainer. Jesse Duplantis. I'll help you spell it. I'll find the links for you if you send me an email. He gets huge crowds. Why? Because he doesn't preach the Word. He tells his stories. It's amazing. But the Bible told us that was coming. Do you believe that word of prophecy? That word of prophecy was that the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall be turned away from the truth and be turned unto fables. That's a word of prophecy. Do you believe it? It's more sure than God's voice from heaven. Because it's happening right in front of our eyes. Thank you, Lord. How could the Bible, especially the Old Testament, be more sure than the transfiguration? The transfiguration didn't show Jesus coming. It just showed Him glorified. It didn't show him sitting on the throne of judgment. It just showed the power of God, very defensive and jealous for his glory. Above all others, including Moses and Elijah, the greatest prophets of Israel. The transfiguration was only a token or illustration of the coming of Jesus Christ. The word of prophecy is written down for us. We don't have to rely on anyone's interpretation of what they saw or what they heard and how they understood it. Because the Bible was written by 40 writers over many years, not three men with one short event. Because the Bible has numerous prophecies that provide much greater evidence than just one event. Because of much greater confirmation, many more details found in the Bible. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter's account of the transfiguration is not the best hope of Jesus Christ coming back. What the Bible says about Jesus Christ coming back and the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and coming before the Ancient of Days and casting the beast into the fire and His kingdom enduring forever. Now that's a glorious prophecy from Daniel 7. The one that Austin read from Psalm 102 about the heavens and the earth being changed because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That stuff is written down in the Old Testament and we should believe it. You know, if a person verbally reports a vision, they might have heard it incorrectly. If a person verbally reports a vision, they might have seen it incorrectly. They might interpret it incorrectly. They might repeat it incorrectly. And you might hear it, see it, or understand it from them incorrectly. There's a whole lot at stake when you go by oral tradition or somebody telling you, I had a dream. Well, how do you know it just wasn't from bad food at supper? You know, how can you ever tell any of that? This book is written by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These are God's words. And we receive them as such. The word of prophecy is clearly identified in the following context as the Bible 
But however, what's primarily in focus is the prophecy of Jesus Christ's second coming. Thank you, Lord. We see the Old Testament because in verse 21 it says, the prophecy came not in old time. So we see that Peter is definitely including, if not emphasizing, the Old Testament because of his Jewish audience that would appreciate him going back and getting Moses and the others that wrote in old time. But, while we're looking at this, we remember that we are in the time of Reformation where the Old Covenant is being replaced with the New Covenant, and they're running simultaneously side by side. And depending on which audience you are talking to, and which point is under consideration, there may be more or less emphasis on the New Testament. But I want you to know that Peter well knows that Paul has already written his epistles, and Paul's epistles already tell about the Second Coming. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. What is chapter 3 about? It's about the promise of His coming. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. The whole chapter is about His coming. About a fervent heat that's going to be behind us as we are ripped out of the atmosphere of this world as He burns up this world. He describes that in verses 10 through 14. He says that the earth that is kept by the same word in store right now is going to be burned up in verse 7. It's about the promise of His coming in verse 4. Chapter 3 is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It couldn't be any plainer. So in verse 15 it says, "...an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation." Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Paul's epistles, as also in all his epistles. Isn't that (laughs) amazing? The Catholics say, we got the New Testament in 400 A.D. (laughs) They're 350 years late. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Now listen, the New Testament prophecies are a whole lot brighter and clearer than the Old Testament prophecies. Does anybody agree with that? Do you prefer 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 about the Lord Jesus Christ coming and He's going to grab those that are dead in the ground first, then we which are alive remain? Those are, those are pretty detailed. 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the dead and what kind of a body we're going to get and how we're going to be changed and how we're going to mock death and mock the grave. That's pretty wonderful. As also in all his epistles, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. And you know, when you look at that, and if you let the context force your interpretation of those two verses, it's about the second coming. Are there futurists that have ruined the second coming in one direction? And are there preterists that have ruined the second coming in the other direction? And here we go again, trying to go down the crown of the road for what the Bible teaches. You know, the preterists say the second coming and everything attached to it is already past. The futurists say that everything in the Bible, along with the second coming, is all in the future. And there we go down the middle of the road. Some of the things have been fulfilled, and there are others that are not fulfilled. And the glorious and powerful appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ has not yet been fulfilled. Because at that time, He will raise the dead, cast the wicked into hell, put the devil into hell. And from my experience this past week, the devil is not yet in hell. Yet they say, it's just, it's amazing. But they rest the scriptures to their own destruction. Let's not be destroyed with the word of God. Let's be established on the word of God. Lord help us. 
You say, what about the Gospels? Paul quoted the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. He quoted Luke 10, 7. Paul confirming that the Gospel account of Luke was already Scripture because he quotes it as Scripture. Here Peter is telling us that Paul's epistles, including the one where he quoted... Oh yeah, you, you get it, right? The New Testament was solidly established before 70 A.D. And the Catholics want to tell us they gave us... I get it pretty often... Catholics wanting to tell us that I ought to be thankful to the Mother Church for giving me the Bible. (laughs) Thankfully, the Bible I have has 66 books instead of their 75, and thankfully I've never heard of their magisterium by which I have to submit to the Pope's interpretation of the Bible. Brethren, we have the Bible and you can read it and you can see that the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing nigh. The number of dated prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled are so few, if uh, any, And we just want to rejoice and trust the Lord and obey Him. Fulfilled prophecies are wonderful. I preached a series of messages one time on them. On our website is a detailed explanation of Alexander the Great. And the purpose for it there is to show you the fulfillment of Scripture. Because prophecies fulfilled build faith. Prophecies fulfilled build our confidence in God. God boasts of His power. God boasts of His omniscience in His ability to declare the future before it comes to pass. And once you know one fulfilled prophecy, then you want to learn a second one. And when you learn fulfilled prophecies, then you can embrace, believe, and change your life based on the unfulfilled prophecies because they are certainly going to come to pass. We had a brother pray in the back room this morning, and I know this brother, and I know what he likes about John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, and if this were not so, I would have told you. He likes that little point in there. If it were not so, I would have told you. It is so, so I've told you that I'm coming again. And in my Father's house are many mansions. Do you believe those things? Now that's the word of prophecy from the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning when we started with Matthew 24, we had the word of prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My words shall not pass away. The most solid and substantial, permanent and final things that we know are heaven and earth, yet they are going to pass away, but the words of our Lord Jesus Christ will not. I will come again and receive you unto Myself. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, Peter is referring primarily to the Old Testament. If the Old Testament, in its obscure, dark, shadowy pictures... Now, some of that language we had read to us this morning wasn't too obscure. But if it is more sure then the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, what about the New Testament? And so Peter's building his case and he's going to get over to the epistles of of Paul and some men rest them to their own destruction, but Peter says, Paul and I are just like this. Paul wrote of the very same things in his epistles. That there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because everything's going to be changed. And there's going to be a fire to burn up all the adversaries and he's going to destroy the wicked. Lord, we thank You for the Word of God. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. That is so exciting. In the Friday update that I sent you this week, I wanted to point out, for the sake of a preacher in Tanzania, that the Swahili version that he preaches from has a couple problems. The problems are 
and I actually gave you a Swahili Bible in a link. You could actually look up 2 Samuel 21.19 and staring at all those strange words, you could see, uh-oh, Elhanan, the son of Jerorajim, killed Goliath. Uh-oh, we have a problem. Or you could look up Mark 1-2 in Swahili and you could go through, uh-oh, there's the word Isaiah. Uh-oh, Mark 1-2 where a quotation is being taken from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, I can see the word Isaiah in the Swahili Bible, even though you probably haven't spoken much Swahili this past week. But you can see that there is a problem in that verse because God in His kindness has shown us their problems, a few of their problems. <clears throat> we have a more sure word. Right. The original Schofield Reference Bible was supposed to be the King James Bible text. It wasn't, but it was very, very close. The new Schofield Reference Bible, which came out in 1967, which I got a nice calfskin, leather-bound, gold-engraved version when I was in my early teens. When you go to 1 Samuel 13.1, in a Bible that is professing to be the King James Bible, in 1 Samuel 13.1 it has dot, dot, dot in the middle of a verse. Mm -hmm. That's an ellipsis, meaning we've lost some words. It's the second one. Let me check out my King James Bible. It's 1 Samuel 13, 1. I don't have any ellipsis in this Bible. We have also a more sure word. I want to tell you how the Lord stirred me up a long time ago, 32 years ago, by this passage. And I don't want to leave that first clause. But I should, because there's something on the back wall telling me that in all prudence I should leave the first clause. But that first clause, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And it goes on to describe the Scriptures that were written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. That is just powerful. That is why we are Bible Christians in this church. As I said last Sunday, there may be other churches in Greenville County that call themselves this or that Bible church, but we are the Bible church. We hold to one Bible, we believe it's every word, and we try to rightly divide its every word and understand and apply its every word. Right. Thank you, Lord, for how you've convicted us and led us, and we have chucked all the rest of them. They're nonsense, and they waste so much time. And the lexicon games that men play that took a semester or two of Greek and or Hebrew and think that they're experts on it and they can correct this when the 54 men that translated our King James Bible took a little bit more than one or two semesters at Greenville Tech. I, I mentioned the better university. Well, and I won't go there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We believe the King James Bible because of faith in its promises fruit in its evidence, the facts of its internal integrity, and the fools that hate it. And that is a document on our website. Why we believe the King James Bible. The four F's. Faith, fruit, facts, and fools. Internal evidence given to us by the Bible. We don't have to go outside the Bible and scramble around for manuscript evidence. No one is ever going to be able to prove a Bible by manuscript evidence. There's too much contradictory evidence. Though, 
though the men that have done a faithful, honest, sincere, humble job have shown that the evidence is behind the King James Bible. But remember, why do we believe the King James Bible and on what grounds do we believe it? Four spiritual marks that God gave us in the Bible which are the same marks that prove the canon of 66 books. When you go to a scholar of this world and ask them, how do we know the 66 books are the right books? There isn't any historical, linguistic, geographical evidence. They have to say we just believe it because those 66 books just came together and God blessed them. Thank you. That's what we believe about our King James Bible. Do you know how powerful that what I just told you is? You do not have to go play a game that will never end in this life. And that is comparing thousands of scraps of manuscript evidence. You can go inside the Bible, find four categories of proofs of our Bible, and they're the same kind of proofs that prove the canon of 66 books. Our confidence in the King James Bible is based on very substantial evidence and proof. God's evidence and proof. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Next clause. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. It is the right thing and it is a good thing to take heed to this more sure word of prophecy. We need to believe it. We need to study it. And most of all, we need to obey it. It is God's Bible we ought to pay attention to for its great value for our souls. But the more sure word of prophecy here is particularly Christ's second coming. And we ought to take heed to that and be thinking about it as Peter is going to continue to press. Look what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3. We had this read to us last Lord's Day. No, I want verse 11, excuse me, 3.11. 10 describes the day of the Lord coming in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But look at verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? It ought to change our lives. Verse 11. Look at verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. Notice that these verses 11 and 14, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, are telling us that we ought to change our lives to be ready to meet Him. And so when we come back to this 19th verse and we grab that middle clause, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, we want to take heed to the prophecies of Scripture that describe the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would say, for we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says it twice in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. We want to pay attention and humble ourselves and submit ourselves to this great unfulfilled prophecy and that is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How will we ever know the will of God without the written Word of God? The secret things belong unto the Lord Himself, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, is what Jesus said regarding the parable of the sower in the Gospel of Luke. It takes a conscious choice and a diligent effort to learn God's Word. 
It takes focus and it takes enduring sound doctrine. It takes preparation. It takes prayer. It takes participation. It takes listening. It takes responding. It takes humbling yourself, repenting, and obeying what you have heard. Promises and prophecy of the Lord's second coming are life-changing and they're universe-altering as Romans chapter 8 describes them. This is the primary intent of the passage and we want to keep that emphasized the most. Partaking of the divine nature and escaping lusts are based on the exceeding great and precious promises. Back there in chapter 1 and verse 4, how do we partake of the divine nature? By putting on the new man that is created in the image of him that created him. How do we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust? By putting off the old man. How are we motivated to do those two things? By the exceeding great and precious promises that are given to us. Do you understand how this all comes together? Listen, brethren, God has had mercy on us in helping us understand the first sentence of this epistle by realizing it is practical and not legal or vital. It's very important to look at that fourth verse, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we learn, as we believe, and as we embrace the exceeding great and precious promises, and those are pointing forward, something that's promised has not yet happened. It's yet to come as we embrace those and realize there's heaven after this. I'm going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. It causes us to put on the new man, which is the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to put off the old. And so he hasn't changed. Here in this 19th verse, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed to the Word of God and what it has to say, especially the second coming of Christ. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. The as here is very helpful. Do you remember that a simile is when a comparison is being made and a simile is indicated by two English words, as or like. Now if there's no as or like and there's a comparison being made, then it's called a metaphor. It's all metaphorical. But it's technically a simile when you have the word as or like. I am hungry as a bear. Well, that little as tells us all in the English language that I just created a simile by comparing a bear. I don't know if they're hungry or not, but we say it, we say things like that. He's as fast as a deer. Not quite. I'd like to see that on a track. But we use the word as. And so there's a comparison being made. And so here we have this little as, and it's telling us that the second half of this verse is a simile. We don't want to get too particular about the bear and his hunger level. We want to see the picture that's being drawn for us. We have also a more sure word of prophecy Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. We are in a condition of darkness, like nighttime. At nighttime, you need a light. And we ought to pay attention to the Bible and what it says 
especially its promises and prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ, like we need a light in the dark so that we don't stumble over something and we can find something that we're looking for when there's no other light. Because we're in darkness in this world. This world is a dark place. And we need God's Word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway to be able to see what God wants us to do and to avoid the pitfalls of life. Especially in light of His second coming. That we don't get wrapped up down here, but we set our affection on things above and not on things on the earth. The second half of this verse is a simile. It's metaphorical language. It is comparing us at night needing a powerful flashlight to do anything efficiently or productively because we're in the dark. And how long do you need a flashlight at night to get around your house? When do you no longer need it? When the day dawns and the day star arrives. The day star equals the morning star equals Venus or any other planet or star that occurs and appears right with the rising of the sun. That's how it's used in the Bible. Until the day dawn. Do you see the picture? When it's dark outside and we're in our house, then it's really dark. Because you don't even have the residual light of the moon or the stars to help you. You're in your house and you need a light. But you you need that light to get around. You need that light to find anything. Or you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to trip. And you won't be able to find what you're looking for. I'm repeating myself. I want you to see the simile. When can you turn the flashlight off? When the day dawns and the day star arises in your heart. When in your heart you have the precursor of full light. Something is going to happen that is going to change our need for the light of God's Word. What is that event? It is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A day star is going to arise in our heart. An event is going to happen that is going to be the precursor of a full breaking forth of light into our hearts. And a day is going to dawn. What day is it? The eternal day of eternal heaven. Oh, thank you, Lord. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. That little word as tells us we've got a simile that extends for the second half of this verse. The world was dark then, and it's darker now. They were closer to the apostolic age, and all the spirit power and great light of the apostles turning the world upside down. Evil seducers are waxing worse and worse, so that even Christianity today is dark. There's a famine for the light of God's Word, as Amos describes it, and 2 Timothy 4 proves it. The Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light for our pathway. If... To the law and to the prophets. If they do not follow the law and the prophets, then there is no light in them. And that's the kind of world that we live in. It's a world full of fables and science, falsely so-called, filling our world with darkness. The gospel is glorious light, but we are still in darkness in this world until we are in heaven, and then it will be perfect light. There is no darkness there. There is no night there. The Lamb is the glory of that place. There's no need for the sun or the moon. The Lamb is the glory. And that day is going to dawn soon, and the, 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 the morning star or the day star that indicates that that day is upon us is when the Lord Jesus Christ appears. The day dawning must be the eternal day ushered in by Jesus Christ's return. 
It must be, listen, here, here were the commentary. Here, here go the commentaries. I'll, I'll share a couple with you. Okay. The day dawning and the day star arising in your hearts is when, by you reading the Bible enough, you become super knowledgeable. Now, wait, wait a minute. Just, that's what they said. You're going to become super knowledgeable about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his coming. You're going to rise to the heights of knowledge about Jesus. So this is progressive sanctification and progressive revelation until you're just filled with the knowledge of Jesus. But notice what the passage says. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed until, as unto a, that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn. When are we going to reach a status of knowledge and understanding in this life where we no longer need the, need the Bible? It isn't happening. It isn't happening. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? Their other idea. That the day dawning and the day star arising in your hearts is the New Testament. The darkness was the Old Testament. You know, there's verses that could apply to that. That the Old Testament was rather obscure and dark, but now they have the New Testament. But see, there's a problem there because over earlier in the first chapter, in verse 12, Peter says about these Paul taught... Paul converted believers in Asia that they were already established in the present truth. And do you know what great knowledge they had of Christ? Chapter 1 of the first epistle says they rejoiced with joy unspeakable and full of glory. When can we lay the Bible down? When do we no longer need the Bible? When the Lord Jesus Christ appears from heaven and takes us into heaven and we are glorified with Him. What is the day star arising in our hearts? It's that first event that's the precursor of the full day of eternity. It's the Lord's return. When He shouts from heaven, and when that event takes place, that is the day star, the full day of eternity is upon us. That's the dawning of the day. That's the beginning of eternity. And until then, we need to pay attention to the Bible and be focusing on the second coming of Jesus Christ so that we will alter our lives accordingly. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18, through 18, the words of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, how do we know that it's going to happen? Because Peter was transfigured? Or because of cunningly devised fables by Jesse Duplantis? How do we know that Jesus Christ is coming again? Because the Bible tells us so. It's the word of prophecy. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. May the Lord bless the preaching of His word.